I want to welcome you back to another episode of what I branded Pivotal, since these interview stock segments tackle impactful CPG industry topics and lessons from the business leaders that live it every day. In my world, hearing about this or that successful brand or person launching a new energy drink has become an almost weekly occurrence. I could understand how a casual market observer could easily get desensitized to it, or maybe even a bit dismissive, like some pundits seem to have gotten about the trending functional beverage category. But I've tried to pride myself on deciphering what's noise from who's actually making music. When the energy drink brand Juvie launched in October of 2022, I could tell there was some intent behind pairing the right audience and the right product, plus choosing to launch with and continue to support early instant delivery partners like GoPuff. Additionally, what I believed was the smart decision to not make Juvie explicitly about the esports gaming market despite having unique province within the hardcore of that growing niche market. But it was after a industry friend in common connected me with Sam Keen, co-founder of Juvie, that all of my earlier thoughts started to make a lot more sense. In our conversation, Sam and I cover everything from how his early years at Red Bull had an outsized impact on the creation of Juvie a handful of years later. We also share insights about the growing importance of having an established audience or community when building within the CPG industry. And additionally, we talked through the interesting details behind last month's acquisition of Juvie by the beverage portfolio Sprecher Brewing. Moreover, we explore what Sam's most excited about post-deal from the Juvie growth plan to his new CMO role, being able to bring stories to life for each of the Sprecher brands. But without further delay, here is the recent conversation I had with my good buddy, Sam Keen. All right. So I guess before we get into the fun, I think it would only be appropriate if we start with a traditional German drinking song. I'm, I'm just kidding. Right. I, don't, I don't think so. But <laughs> you're like, oh, no, I don't know any what? of those. You're like, I haven't learned that in the, uh, in the new company handbook yet. Uh, but no. I did want to say as a German pros to, uh, you know, health, well-being and all the kind of professional life changes that you've had recently, which I think we'll talk about throughout this content. But Sam, welcome. And thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join me. Dude, thank you so much, Josh. Prost, man. Like, great to be on. So let's start back like almost 20 years ago during your Red Bull days or years, I guess, at that point. Yeah. And I didn't know, first of all, that you spent a considerable amount of your career there. But then when I started to kind of look through some things, I'm like, wait a minute, this all kind of just makes sense, which is, I guess, in hindsight, usually how it works. But tell me a little bit about like what you did at Red Bull, maybe some interesting stories or something like that, because I always feel like that's a brand that people look at and they go, this is such an inspirational, iconic place. Yeah, uh, you know, it uh, it does feel very kismet, but uh, it's it's... I get goosebumps thinking about how my career worked out. It was not planned. It wasn't like I had a roadmap of this is what I want to do all the way. It just, it's come full circle in the most beautiful way. I started out in 2004 as part of the college program for Red Bull. And uh, I met my future wife in that program. I was one of the top performers in that program. I got hired right out of that program into corporate Red Bull at the headquarters. And I worked, you know, just for high level, I worked across collegiate marketing. I did some sampling marketing. I really cut my teeth in digital marketing, which 
early days, you know, mid 2000s, it was, you know, digital team was like five people. Now it's a couple hundred people in North America alone. And uh, we did anything and everything digital. So the, like partnerships with Facebook, Red Bull had one of the biggest Facebook audiences in the world at that time. Uh, any website development, any athlete engagement. My specialty was motorsports and aviation. So if it went fast or flew through the sky, I worked on it. F1 team, NASCAR team, uh, all the motocross events. Um, and so it was just a really incredible time. Uh, in 2010, I was still there and kind of looking around at like what opportunities Red Bull had, you know, white space. What, what haven't we done? Which was, is very hard because Red Bull does everything. And uh, gaming was something that I was passionate about personally. I spent a lot of time playing video games and I thought, you know, there's obviously a consumer market fit here. And so I was able to launch that program globally uh, by something as simple as, you know, we invited a uh, pro Halo player into the office to train with other pro Halo players in one of the conference rooms. Like that, that was the idea. We live streamed it. It was the highest viewed live stream that Red Bull had ever had which now you have people in Austria at headquarters going, what is this live stream? It does better than skateboarding. We should think about more of this kind of stuff. And we're literally, I mean, it was, there was no cost to it. It was just in a conference room. And, uh, you know, every other country in the world was like, we love gaming. This makes sense. So Japan, Australia, UK, Germany, like all jumped on board with this gaming initiative. And uh, it was just, it was a wild time back then where you could literally have an idea, have a dream, pitch for it, put your like soul behind it and make it happen. And that's, that's what people know Red Bull for is this kind of limitless brand creativity, all kind of backed by, you know, 8.4 ounce can of caffeine. Maybe you did or didn't know at the time, but was anything in the kind of brewing in your head that you maybe would get back in the space i don't i mean maybe like a decade later and then also think about the productization of you know gaming or esports and and just so happen to be in a you know similar you know same uh space you know, I was so young in my career and that's really what I'm so thankful for is, I mean, I was doing all this as like a young 20 year old. I was flying around the world. I was doing these mega events. I was working with these incredible uh, athletes. Like that, that was all things that like, I didn't know many other people my age that were able to do that. And so I really hadn't thought like, what does the next five years, 10 years look like? Because the next six months and one year were changing so rapidly for me. Um, but I did always think about the product because at Red Bull, they have such a well-formed concept of who they are and what their product is, that if you're an employee there, you really don't spend a lot of time thinking or worrying about what's in that can. You spend all your time thinking about like what you're tasked with. And it, it occurred to me many times, you know, looking at the ingredients, thinking about the flavors. And, and I was there through the era where it was 8.4 ounce only. Okay, well, now we're going to go to 12 ounce. Well, now we're going to try a flavor for the first time, you know, and that was really for them pushing against some like baked in mantra of like, we don't need all these flavors. That's that's a weird Americanism, um, where in reality, that was where all the growth was being driven across the category was different sizes, different flavors and still is today. I mean, look at look at every other brand and look at Juvie. We we love flavors. Um and so that it, it, it had crossed my mind, but I was never 
close enough. I wasn't ever in the inner echelon of people in Austria designing or making those decisions. Um, and I, I, at the time, I didn't really even know if I was coming back to beverage. I, I, I left Red Bull to go to NASCAR to work uh, on, and build their social media platforms across the sport and with all the teams and drivers. And so I kind of at that time just was thinking, maybe I'll spend more time in sport. I understand motorsports. I love motorsports. Maybe I'll spend more time there. Um, but life did bring me back right back to beverage. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful. And, and at this point in my career, like beverage is absolutely where my specialty is. It's where my focus and passion is. So, uh, from here on out, uh, it, I'm definitely focused on liquid. You made the point around, you know, just, I guess, how hesitant Red Bull was to, you know, innovate from a flavor standpoint, or even from, you know, I think it took them, you know, 15 or so years just to do a sugar-free version. And, and then, you know, just those those insane uh, lengths of time between actually kind of needing to even, or, you know, arguably they probably did, didn't need to, but just eventually coming around and saying, you know, let's, let's try some of these other things out. It just, it's such a, a differing, I guess, uh, thought or ideology to where we are today in the energy beverage space, or just pretty, pretty much any, I guess, adjustable CPG category where it's like, launch the heck out of flavors, launch the heck out of these like different uh, variants, if it's, you know, different uh, package sizes or something like that. And that was such a, a thing that was different at Red Bull, which I, I appreciate in a lot of senses. I also understand that that, you know, a lot of times was in a different part of the, of the market's uh, maturity or life cycle than it is today. Um, yeah. But regardless, it's, it's such a place that you have to like appreciate just their I guess, patience or, or their, their trust that like they could just do things differently than everybody else. There's, there's almost no other brand or company in the world that can sell like one thing, one skew, one size at the scale and volume for the amount of time that Red Bull did. Like almost nobody else would ever do that. Yeah. I think it gets in the idea of, you know, where arguably they're selling a lifestyle, I guess, you know, at the yeah. end of the day, they're, you know, the product, I guess, is the foundation in which they build stories from. And, you know, maybe they didn't need to have a lot of those things because the stories in which they were cultivating off of that or building off of that were so rich that it didn't, didn't matter, which maybe gets us into where you settled in at before Juvie, which was at you know, a hundred thieves, which I think in a sense, like esports, or I know that that word sometimes is, is um, misused, which I probably just did, but I think about it more from the standpoint of that they were a lifestyle brand within an entertainment niche and they were really building stories. And eventually there was that idea of how do we productize this from a CPG standpoint, but initially it was you have to build out that lifestyle. You have to really cultivate that, that lifestyle, that brand before. And, you know, that moves into the idea of, you know, the importance of, I guess, communities or the importance of audiences and how you build those things up that then become such an important part of launching CPG in today's world, because it feels like you have to have something different. You have to have something distinct. There has to be something that you ultimately can, you know, own um, or, you have to have so much money in your back pocket that you can kind of overcome some of that stuff. It's 
Yeah. And to be clear, so much money is even an understatement. Like it's, it's almost impossible to overcome it with just sheer cash. And that's, that's really the challenge of CPG going back to hundred thieves, you know, the most beautiful part about this entire story and what I like will always smile upon is just before I left Red Bull in 2012, I signed a McDonald's uh, drive-through clerk as a professional video game player for Call of Duty. Uh, he was one of the like just infectious character. Like you just the second you're in his presence, you could tell he was special. Um, and at the time, Red Bull had a stance against violent video games. And so I adjusted his contract to call him a content creator, but signing him as a Call of Duty player and then left the company so that it could go through and I wouldn't get in trouble for it. Uh, he went on to like win an X Games gold medal three months later, like just absolutely took off as a YouTuber. His career is legendary in the video game space. And what's so cool about him as a person, that's Matthew Nadeshot Haig, who founded 100 Thieves. And so whenever he, you know, grew 100 Thieves, they were a lifestyle brand. They started to look at, you know, building these commoditized uh, items that's when we were able to sync back up and he said, Hey, like, this is something I love. I'm passionate about. I've always loved it. And we, you know, worked together a decade ago. Let's go build this from the water up. And he's, he's such a big part of why we made so many of the decisions we did. Community is something that he and I both are like, just, just totally like in sync on. And if you're, if you're starting a D2C brand or if you're starting a CPG, what we see a lot in the market is, uh, trying to generate sales via ads, right? Like you're spending on Meta, you're spending on TikTok, you're spending on Google, whatever you're spending on to try and generate that revenue. If you do that, you're on a hamster wheel. You're always paying, you know, at some level to generate your sales. Having an audience, having a community is, is, is a free wheel. There's, there's no pay against that. You're, you're actually getting the sales based on people who love your product. And for us, the, the mechanism to grow that audience was thinking about how we go about different uh, beverage differently than, than other people in the space, you know, like at this, at the end of the day, yes, like ingredients are different. Yes. Branding is different. Taste profiles are different, but we're selling kind of the same need state. We're sale, we're selling the same solution. And so how do we do things that Red Bull or Monster or Rockstar or anybody else in the space can't do? Well, we, we do the things that market leaders can't do. We iterate faster. We show people our process. We show people, you know, like uh, the designs that didn't make it for this can. We show them all of that and bring them in and make them feel like they're a part of it. And that's that's the difference maker. And we didn't have to pay for that. That's just that's just opening the opening the door and saying, "Come on in, like get to know us." Community is absolutely vital, and and we've seen it time and time and time again. Brands that launch. Doesn't matter if they have massive distribution, massive funding. If they don't have a community, they ultimately fail, or they ultimately get shuttered by the big brand who thought they could work. Yeah, it's it's to your point around if it's beverage or you know, arguably most of the CPG categories, you're picking from the same you know bucket of ingredients, the same basic formats, the same you know, arguably distribution channel. You know, there's all these types of things that just are really similar and yeah. yet there can be so much uniqueness 
to the different, I guess I always call them like languages or, you know, dialects or even just ways in which somebody says something a little bit different or that, that all ultimately builds up this more unique aspect that is very hard for somebody to copy. And if they do, you know, usually the audiences or the communities can spot those things pretty quickly and they aren't at risk at some switch or, or something like that. So you end up really have to, having to flip this on its head, though the product I think needs to be great. Ultimately, that is the the you know central part or the central node of, of CPG. It needs to be thought of in a way that um, the other kind of tentacles that are built off of that really makes that product unique. It goes back to you know Red Bull and all that. It's like you're building stories, you're layering on these different things that make that particular product seem different than everything else, even though it's the same you know, carbonated water flavor and caffeine and a few other kind of things in there, you know, it, that doesn't really mean much. It, what means much is that, you know, they're cultivating this difference in the consumer's mind that then kind of puts them at this, you know, kind of deeper emotional state or, or, or a place where they feel almost, um, you know, terrible if they would have to make a decision on like trading down or something like that, because it's such a part of their personality at this point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and any any founder, any like DTC owner or CPG owner that sit in a distributor conversation will will tell you that. You know, like a distributor tries is like, cool, I've got 15 other energy drink options to go on my truck. What makes yours different? You know, and and sometimes if you're ahead of a category, you can get away with, well, mine has a different ingredient that nobody has caught on to yet, and maybe that works for a time. But eventually, you're going to run out of steam there if you don't have a community story to tell and say, hey, look, I have a community. And we did this, you know, really successfully last year when we were getting into 7-Elevens. We say, look, we have a community. I can tweet right now and have 40 of your stores sold out in the next two days. And it, it, we just time and time again nailed it for 7-Eleven. And it was, it was really what helped us make good progress last year. We'll make more progress this year in getting into retail stores because we're able to activate it. And this is also, again, what I, to me is when I go back to, you know, buying ads and, you know, trying to get on that hamster wheel, you, you can't convert that to offline if you're on an online hamster wheel. And so that's where a lot of, uh, I would just recommend for CPG owners to really, really think about like build that community, do it authentically, just tell your story, but tell it openly and just uh, allow people to give you feedback. It's the best thing you can do. And I want to talk about something that I think I, I gave you props for the first time we, we met and talked. And that's that decision to not make Juvie like explicitly about esports or gamers or, or whatever. And I think that for me, at least, what I appreciated with that is that coming from somebody that probably would be, I guess, categorized as a casual gamer. And of these big, massive, you know, market sizes that all these people pull and say, oh my God, the opportunity is so massive and we need to be here and we need to do these things. Like I, though that's true that I maybe am considered a casual gamer, I don't double down on that aspect of my life that I want it to be like accessorized. Like I don't want to buy things that are basically for those people because that's not a big part of my personality. It's just something that maybe... It's something I do and maybe it's something that I, I never even mentioned to people within a cocktail party or something like that. 
but there are obviously people that that would that that's how they would label themselves or that's how they would prominently tell everybody about what they do but to me that's cool and, and maybe that's something that other brands maybe lean super far into but it has a ceiling um, that I think won't be overcome very easily unless we're, if we're talking in this market like you're super patient because yeah you know generational change things like that that maybe people do value that at such a higher level that maybe it makes sense but in current time it, it's hard sometimes to to kind of put yourself on that you know trajectory and say like oh i have a ceiling that's that's pretty low yeah i that's i this is actually one of the toughest things about being a cpg you want to be patient you want all your decisions to be like patient thoughtful methodical ones you know you talk about this a lot um in retails, like own your market, really focus on delivering success in your market before you scale nationally. But then you have the, the pressure of growing revenue at, at, at really rapidly. And so, you know, founders are, uh, are tasked with like iterating quickly and making decisions quickly. So we can't be as patient as we'd like to be. What worked really well for us with our kind of like in gaming, but beyond gaming strategy was we had a niche. We had a group and, and it's been said many times, like there's riches and niches. Like we knew, we knew we could focus our marketing dollars on gamers, but in order to kind of like connect with them, it didn't need to be eight bit. It didn't need to have like video game graphics all over it. It needed to be something that they could drink in front of their computer while they're playing and then take to class without feeling like it didn't fit there. And what's benefited us is most of the new consumers I see have no connection to gaming at all, but they see the branding and they see the way it looks and tastes and feels, and they fall in love with it too, which is something that to your point, it, there would have been a ceiling where like soccer moms, you know, like practice dads, uh, like, you know, Gen Z creator uh, at a bookstore, not going to, not going to touch a video game energy drink but they will play with Juby because they think it looks cool um, and, and fulfills their need. And that was, that was such a critical, critical piece. And of course, like we have nods to um, like gaming aesthetic here and there within our different packages and, and promotions that we've done, but it's not nothing so overt where a consumer up and down the street would feel weird holding that can. The other big thing, uh, for what it's worth that we considered a lot coming from our gaming heritage was the decision not to be a powder first product. And, you know, if, if you're looking at kind of the rest of the market, it actually makes a lot of sense to be powder first, better margins. Like you can, you can do volume plays with, with discount buys. Like there's just a lot more you can do while you're building that community in powder, but specifically within the gaming segment, it is overrun by energy powders and we would have been completely undifferentiated to the end consumer. And it was like truly a bold statement to come out right out of the gate with a packaged uh, beverage that almost nobody does that. It's expensive. It's hard. It's costly. It has an expiration date. Uh, and, but in our case, it made such a big difference to being able to reach our consumers in a premium package. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on the on the powder side because obviously that's right in my wheelhouse, and I feel like for at this point maybe seven 
years or so, I've had, you know, brands coming to me and, and wanting to arguably like just swap out what they have for a pre-workout and turn it into a gamer kind of energy product or, or something like that. And because in their mind, they saw the, say the leading uh, players and, and they look at it from just a formula perspective and they go, I can make a better mousetrap than that. And which is the completely wrong, I guess, uh, take on all this because, you know, anybody that knows anything about the powdered supplement spaces, there's extremely low barriers to entry. And because of that, you can quickly iterate. And, and if you do want to play the product benefit kind of feature uh, ingredient game, it's just a race to the bottom, or I guess just, you know, let's see how many we can uh, attach on before it becomes so ridiculous. It's crazy. And at the end of the day, going back to, you know, the market uh, of the gaming world or, or even like the competitive side of things, that's a very small piece of it. And then within competitive gamers, even their understanding of maybe the nuances of products or ingredients is even smaller than that, um, which is very similar to just mainstream uh, public as a whole. So then yeah. you're just kind of um, over-engineering things. You're, you're not realizing that the drivers are, are different, which kind of rolls back into what you're saying about the beverage side is that I've always kind of mentioned that I think the form factor plays more of a role than the actual ingredient deck sometimes, because just being able to offer something that's much more, I guess, uh, convenient to the actual application or the use occasion to that is yeah. worldly important to the people that are taking that because it is like, I think you get this element of the, the people that always have used supplements for the longest time. Like they, they forget that there is still a cumbersome aspect to getting a shaker or, or figuring out how to mix up this thing. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but then it's this whole other steps that end up creating confusion or just a little bit of friction that consumers that maybe are not used to it it's above and beyond what they're willing to accept. And then they move on. So it's yeah. all these things kind of work together that and it makes a lot of sense, the decisions that you made, because in, in my mind, it's kind of like the playbook that works here. But to your you know, earlier comments, like it's not as easy to do what you did. Yeah. And you know what? It's also uh, it's not easy for a lot of people to take themselves out of the front seat in terms of like who the actual consumer is, right? Like a lot of people make a product that's just for them and, and they may be willing to do 15 steps to put together their protein shake or whatever it is, but the average consumer or the target market they're going after isn't. And, and that's a huge, you know, or to your point about ingredients, you know, one of the things that fascinates me, we were very thoughtful in the ingredients we put in and the functional focuses of what they did. Almost every person that I've sampled one-on-one, -on -one, the three things they care about, five calories, no sugar, 128 milligrams of caffeine. Those are the three things they care about. A handful of people will turn the can around and kind of look at, you know, just some of the other punch outs that we have. But the three core things they care about are, are just those. That's 99% of consumers. And yet most products we get super in the weeds about like, well, it's got this and it's got this and it's got lion's mane. Do you know what lion's mane is? Or, you know, all these other ingredients that make sense to us, but don't make sense to most consumers. Uh, and so like, it's, it's really so much throughout the process. You have to think about who the end consumer is going to be and what their, what their level of understanding is going to be. You know, now you guys had 
ton of success with the last couple of years and have created a bunch of, I think, flavor variants and done a lot of fun things you mentioned earlier and just like a lot of momentum was going. And though I think on the, on the backside, there's probably, you know, some things that were, you know, needed to be done or, or could use a partner that was um, more uh, set up for certain things or whatever that was. But like, I'm, I'm curious to understand the backstory on the actual acquisition partner being Sprecher uh, Brewing. And then like, like, what was that process? Was there any like kind of interesting points to that? Yeah. I mean, this is, it's great. This is a, this is the fun part of it. You know, it, the reality was Juvie was a four person team and we were out, you know, creating and innovating products. I think we, we launched five different new flavors last year. We were selling out 7-Elevens. We jumped on Amazon. We were out selling Red Bull Monster Rockstar Celsius on Amazon uh, in Canada and US. And we felt like we were doing all the things right. But at the end of the day, we were four people. <laughs> you know, there just, there wasn't a lot of scale to our team. And for a lot of small companies, it's tough to jump that SGNA. Like you're like, wait, I need to find margin in the cogs so that I can get a little bit more margin to hire people or do more marketing. And at the same time, I still need to grow my brand. So the cash flow challenge is like real. And so we were starting to look at it mid-year last year. And we we're saying, like, what actually is going to take us from where we are, where we feel like we're hitting the top of what we can do uh, as a team of four to really, you know, unchecked growth ability. We started looking at, you know, uh a manufacturing partner would help if they have bigger buying power, we can get cans for cheaper, production for cheaper. Okay, that'd be cool. What about somebody who can help us with sales distribution? This would this is another opportunity for us. And as we started whittling that down and started looking at players in the space, I actually saw that Sprecher had acquired a lemonade brand, smaller lemonade brand. And that that was the trick. Because a lot of the people that I was looking at that could help us were people who were acquiring brands that only had a hundred million plus in revenue, which we weren't at yet. You know, we weren't at that kind of Coke, Pepsi, KDP acquisition level. And even if, even if they did come to us, we would have been a nothing on that truck and probably died off just from neglect. So it was like really tough to find that partner who was going to see us as a huge opportunity, who had space, uh, who maybe didn't have an energy drink product and kind of ticked all those boxes. And so when I saw the, the press release for Ula Lemon acquisition by Sprecher, I was like, I know that brand is smaller than ours. I know they don't have an energy drink in their facility and I know they're vertically integrated. So, you know, they control their destiny uh, and they're, you know, 49 states of distribution. Huge. We're only in Chicago and Los Angeles. This is all upside for both parties. And so that was the real backstory for the acquisition. I reached out to Sherrod and said, hey, like, I'd love to talk to you, you know, learn more about what your vision is for Sprecher. You seem to be on a terror with your growth. And, you know, I think we fit very nicely in your overall philosophy of craft, high craftsmanship, high quality products, which is ultimately what we wanted to make sure Juby stayed and didn't just become, you know, like uh, a, a syrup brand that just kind of got degraded by, uh, you know, like uh, high speed production or something like that. And it, it was, I mean, instantly first phone call, it was just like, we were synced up on what our vision and where we wanted to go with it. And it's probably 
one of the faster acquisitions that's happened in the space just because like everything lined up perfectly and we're like off to the races. I just love that you were both aware of like kind of the size in which you need to be to get the interest of these like big beverage players, because really I think people have a lack of understanding of what you need to be for them to actually be able to help you because really their, their systems, their, you know, everything about them is built to throw gasoline on a certain size business. And then they know almost certainly that that thing will be able to grow a substantial multiple. And that's kind of how they make their deals. But if you're below that, regardless, if you, you know, think, oh, we're an outlier, we could do this, we could do that. It just doesn't ever make sense from the way in which they make their decisions because it's, again, they're, they're playing around billion dollar brands and every incremental minute or resource or dollar, or whatever that is, it's going to go towards the ones where they know they can get the biggest return at. And they're not going to take a risk on a smaller business and realize that maybe sometimes their effort is going to only pay off in the long kind of arc. They're not willing to do that anymore. They, they spent, you know, a lot of you know, decades, if not a century of that time of doing to build this machine that they're not willing to yeah. do that for anybody else. Now that turns off a lot of people because I think that they go, oh, I have to build this thing to a certain size where you've kind of been able to, or, or, or kind of look at it from a different perspective and say, wait a minute, there's actually partners that are buying things at a smaller scale that have a similar machine that they're trying to build, but they're at a much kind of smaller scale that it makes sense. We're actually an attractive part of their portfolio. We could be an interesting piece of their business. But I think a lot of people miss that, you know, kind of forest for the trees type of situation because they're only looking at it as I have five or so big partners that are going to acquire me. And that's the only options I have when really there's a ton of interesting opportunities that are on kind of closer to the floor that people just for whatever reason just realize or think to themselves this isn't for me yeah and you know it's it's an important like self-awareness conversation to have with yourself if you're a founder because the other route we could have gone was we could have gone out and raised money on a multiple that was absolutely an opportunity we candidly we looked at it and and at the end of the day for me as a founder I wanted to see Juvi um, succeed long-term and I wanted to see Juvi kind of have the best shot at becoming what it ultimately can be. And then you look at everything on the table and you go, I could take a risk on raising money and maybe I got to raise more money and maybe I got to raise more money and then maybe it works or doesn't. Or I can work with somebody who's built a really great system that's going to help me take, you know, improvements on cogs and distribution right away. And then we get a, we get a win on merit already that we already have, and we get to continue the progress that we've already made. That was a really important understanding of like what, what I wanted as a founder that helped me kind of make sure that I was choosing the right path there. No, I think that just overall understanding or self-awareness is, is awesome, which kind of spins me back into the idea of thinking about the future because you mentioned like this arguably gave the brand the best chance of success in the future. But after that business was acquired, you got to get out of the weeds of like every single little decision, which I I know it's only been a couple of weeks, but I'd imagine there's some elements that you miss. And then there's some elements that you're like, thank God, I don't have to do this anymore. But regardless, 
you get to take on, I guess, more of a role that's probably in your wheelhouse of like marketing. And then you have this cool like portfolio of brands that you get to now like bring to life with stories and you get to like do those things that you probably uh, love to do across a number of different brands, just not juvie. So like, I can imagine that there's a ton of stuff you're excited about, but also there's probably some things that like you just miss uh, doing. Oh, look, I'm, what I'm not missing is the, you know, 3 a.m. The truck didn't show up and your product's all going to be late and your, uh, you know, retailer is pissed calls uh, and you've got to figure it out. Um, you know, but one of the things that was the reason that I really loved Juvia, especially as a marketer at my core, was it gave me the opportunity to understand what it was to build a product and what it was like to be a product owner or a product manager or, you know, in a, in a, in a different context, a CEO who has a P&L and they've got to make payroll and like to really have that feeling uh, and not just as a marketer who wants to do cool stuff all the time, right? Like, so you, I was able to put that piece, kind of like embed that in myself. And I mean, I, uh, I was on a call uh, with Shrab, my CEO yesterday is like, Hey, I might be, I might be getting over my skis as the marketing person on your team now, but I just, I have a POV that I want to share with you candidly about something else that on a decision we're making as a team. And he's like, I love that. That's why, that's why you're here. Your POVs can extend past marketing. You're not limited to that. And so again, you know, that's to me, it's just, it's definitely found the right partner uh, that I've been able to like leverage that with and to use that with. But I'm so excited to get back to just uh, really focus on marketing. And to your point, now I get to play with every kind of need state, not just energy drinks. And so, you know, that's opened up a ton. It also allows me to do what I love doing, and that's building communities. As you can tell from Juvia, I love building communities. I love uh, interacting with consumers and creators. And now we get to do that on a bigger scale. And uh, what will be fun for the future is there's certain areas that I haven't been able to play in because of how strong of a influence major energy drinks have in those categories where like it wouldn't make sense to take Juvie to a motorsport, for example, because you're just not going to break through the way uh, Red Bull and Monster have just owned that space for so long. I don't have to go with my energy drink anymore. I can go with any one of the other products that don't have nearly the red ocean to battle through in that space. And so it's going to give us a lot more opportunity to, to play and to, to test and, and to really just connect with consumers. So I'm like the most excited about all the opportunity there. And I get to innovate across lots of different products now. So now we get to take all the fun and cool things that we did with Juvie, different can looks, different ingredients, different flavors, and we get to play that out across any other kind of liquid we want to make. And being vertically integrated, it's truly, uh, we have an innovation lab on the facility. It's like, if I want to try out, uh, I was trying it, they have a wild berry um, hard seltzer. Uh, I was drinking last week when I was there. I was like, this is amazing. It's in a 25.4 ounce can. Like, that's cool. I have all the tools to go take that and flip that around and do it for any of our other products that I wanted. Uh, just on spec, just because we wanted to try it, which is uh, is a huge upside for somebody like me who loves to kind of play and innovate and trial things. And for our community who likes to see that journey and process. Yeah, I didn't initially think 
about what you just kind of mentioned, but like from a brewer mentality, it's a lot of like just playing around. Like that's part of what they love to do. And because now they could play it across a bunch of these different things, like you can actually have such an innovative kind of product development, um, you know, kind of cycle or, or just uh, it's so pervasive within the organization that they ultimately are all up for the ideas. They're like, yeah, let's try this, whatever. We're then again, going into the, you know, another acquisition, let's say you go with a P partner or something like that. Like they're going to be like, nope, we're going to trim this thing down to be as efficient as possible. And you're going to have to drive, you know, as much of effectiveness as possible on every kind of dollar you spend here over. This is, like you said, it's kind of like a really perfect partnership from even from, like you said, the CEO kind of understanding that you do have an operator background now that you aren't going to speak through just this, you know, marketing rosy uh, colored lens. Like you're going to look at things a little bit differently. And, and that also can be valuable to the whole organization because you're not just going to think about, you know, just over indexing or, or over optimizing for something where you realize actually it has a, a negative effect on the other side of the business. Like, I think that's a really cool opportunity. I think it's a really cool environment that you kind of settled into. So like super excited to see the future just of like you and just the brands and just like how that's all evolving. Cause this is still new. This is only a couple of weeks old for people that maybe didn't see the the press release or the headlines. So like, we're still just at the point of like the excitement, even getting to the point of, uh, of ripping. Yeah. Thank you, man. It is, it is truly just the beginning and I, you know, how this, how this conversation has evolved. I truly hope this episode is something that's helpful for founders of CPGs, people who are thinking about starting a brand. It just gives them a lot to think about in how they drive that evolution. Uh, because there's just there's been so much through this journey, and to you know the way we started it, this was never my intention. It wasn't a it wasn't a roadmap. It wasn't a plan. But the opportunity came knocking. It was absolutely the best decision uh, of my life, and uh, of my professional life, I should say, it was the best decision of my professional life. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm just so thrilled with the way that it worked out because you know, as a founder, any given month flip a coin, it could be going the other way. And you, you know, you could be trying to wind down a business, which is painful. So it's, uh, I just, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position that I am in and, uh, just really happy with the way it worked out. Yeah. I, li I like the direction this content went as well. And, and I think, um, at that point, I think we're, we're at a really good stopping point because I think we've, we've, we've done a lot of talking. I think it was interesting for hopefully, I know it's for me, but, but the audience, I think will will enjoy it as well. But, uh, Sam, overall, I just want to you know, kind of wish you all the best of luck uh, in the future. I'm excited to kind of see how this all kind of comes to life. And then also, again, thanks for taking some time out of your day to, to do this. Dude, absolutely. Anytime, man. This is, this is the best part of my day. I, I mean, well, after this, I'm going to do, I think, is it this way? I'm doing an unboxing later. So <laughs> I'm unboxing yeah, yeah. Uh, 24 yeah. new Sprecher products. And so it is the best part of my day for now. But I, I, I got to say, man, 24 new, new different products are, are going to be pretty exciting later too. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly. 